disciples. And we're going to start with verse 12, John 16 and verse 12. If you can't hear me, raise your hand or wave or do something. I appreciate everybody having their cameras on, so I'm not speaking to uh, fixed pictures or blank screens. As Jeff said yesterday, it's not the easiest thing in the world to speak on Zoom. Audiences do give you some feedback and um, encouragement. So John 16 and verse 12. I have yet many things to say unto you, but you cannot bear them now. Howbeit, when he, the spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth, for he shall not speak of himself, but so whatsoever he shall hear, that shall he speak, and he will show you things to come. He shall glorify me, for he shall receive of mine, and shall show it unto you. All things that the Father hath are mine, therefore said I that he shall take of mine, and shall show it unto you. A little while he shall not see me, Again, a little while, and you will see me, because I go to the Father. Then send some of his disciples among themselves, What is this that he saith unto us? A little while, and you shall not see me. And again, a little while, and you shall see me. And because I go to the Father. They said, Therefore, what is this that he saith a little while? We cannot tell what he saith. Now Jesus knew they were desirous to ask him, and said unto them, do ye inquire among yourselves of that I said a little while, and ye shall not see me, and again a little while, and ye shall see me? Verily, verily, I say unto you, that ye shall weep and lament, but the world shall rejoice, and ye shall be sorrowful, but your sorrow shall be turned into joy. A woman, when she is in travail, has sorrow, because her hour is come, but as soon as she is delivered of the child, she remembereth no more the anguish for joy that a man is born into the world. And ye now therefore have sorrow, but I will see you again, and your heart shall rejoice, and your joy no man taketh from you. And the Lord will add a blessing to the reading of his word. In a way, this is somewhat like the Garden of Eden. In the Garden of Eden, God was protecting Adam and Eve from information overload. Sometimes when you're learning a new task or learning information, it seems like you're drinking from a fire hose. People give you more information than you can handle or process. And the Lord knows that his disciples at this point can't handle some things, that there's too much information. And so that's what he's telling them here. He would later say something quite similar in John 20, before he went, he said, uh, in, in John, John later writes that there's more information. Sometimes when we read and speak, we have this desire to give people as much information as we possibly can. And I think it's a dangerous thing. I think sometimes bits and pieces of information is better than try to tell them the whole story at once. As it, in John, when he writes at the end of his gospel, he mentions this, and he says, and many other signs truly did Jesus do in, the, do in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you might have life through his name. Sufficient is the story, as it is written, for readers to come to faith in Jesus Christ. 
I maybe mentioned this before, but my both my parents were saved by reading the Gospel of John. There's enough information in the Gospel of John to be saved. There's a whole lot more information in the rest of the New Testament. There's a whole lot more to know than what John presents. But the fact of the matter is he presents enough information that we can come to Jesus Christ as a savior based on what, he's, what he says. We can read the other gospels as we grow and learn and understand even more about the life of Christ. But sometimes we want to information overload people to where they, we overwhelm them with the facts of, and the figures. And so the Lord's being very careful with his disciples. And I think it's a good lesson for us here that he's going to be protected, protective of the information that he gives them. He has more to tell them. But at this point in time, he can't tell them all that he desires to tell them. And so next he says in, in verse 13, Howbeit, when he, the spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth. Well, he shall not speak of himself, but whatsoever he shall hear, that shall he speak, and he will show you things to come. His explain, explanation as to why the time is not to overload him, because they're going to have somebody, the spirit of truth, the helper, the parakaleo that he's been talking about, that's coming. And when that spirit comes, he will guide them into all truth. He'll be a personal guide. I wonder if we think about that sometimes. We have a personal guide. We have a personal mentor. We have a personal instructor that will help us through every event, particularly addressed to the disciples. There's going to be some very difficult times coming up. And after Pentecost, we see great persecution and many difficult times, but he's preparing them for that. And then notice the name that he gives to the coming comforter in this passage, the spirit of truth. The one that would take his place in their life. He could say, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And he said that earlier as we studied in the 14th chapter. Now he's telling they're going to have that same truth in the spirit of truth in their life. And it's important to understand that God's truth is exactly the opposite of Satan, the father of lies. And many people are deceived by Satan, the father of lies. A Christian should not be deceived because in us is the spirit of truth. This is one of the this is one of the proof texts. There's many proof texts, but this is one of the proof texts that the Holy Spirit is a person. The masculine pronoun he is used in reference to the Spirit. He is not a thing, but a person, which is why we recognize the Holy Spirit as a third member of the Trinity. There's many verses, if you study the Trinity or study the Holy Spirit, there's many verses that proves that he is a person. That he's not a thing, he's not an influence, but he's an actual person. This is one of those verses. This passage is a good verse, a good passage on the Trinity, that God is, is in three persons, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Not three personalities. Someone we say might have a split personality, they might have several personalities in one person. 
that's not God. People sometimes are careless with the language they use to describe the Trinity. And I think it's important that we're not careless and that we recognize that it's persons and not personalities. The Holy Spirit would guide them into all truth. That is why it's important that we recognize and validate what the disciples have written in the rest of the New Testament. I've talked about this uh, before, that we have the red letter Bible Christians who believe unless Christ spoke it, it's not the truth. But the fact of the matter is that the early church recognized that the apostle teaching was the truth. In Acts 2.42, a verse most of us know, it says there are, they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship in breaking of bread and in prayers. They fully understood that the apostles' doctrine was truth. And it's important, I think, for us to understand that very much. So we see two things at work here. First, the promise that was given early in John 14, 26, but the comforter, which is the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he shall teach you all things and bring all things to your remembrance whatsoever told you. As we said before, then they were they were not fully understanding. They were a little bit on information overload. He's still protecting them from too much information, but he's given them a lot of information and they're still trying to process it. And he tells them there's coming a comforter. He now names him as a spirit of truth in this passage where they, he will bring to their memory everything that he said. Sometimes people who doubt the inspiration of scriptures, well, how could they remember all these events with such detail? Well, they discount the work of the Holy Spirit in the lives of those who were inspired writers. The Holy Spirit's the one who inspired them. The Holy Spirit's the one who reminded them. The Holy Spirit brought to their memory the details of each one of these accounts. And then the secondly, the promise here is that the coming comforter would guide them into all truth. It's not enough just to remind them of what the truth is, but he would guide them into all truth. God, we should also note that the Spirit does not do his work independently, but conveys the message of God the Father. There's perfect harmony between members of the Godhead, each in his own distinct role, never any variation in purpose or thought. The Spirit acts as a primary agent of the Godhead in the world today. His role is to glorify the Son, as we, as we see in this very passage. It should not be surprising because the Father glorified the Son also. He did it repeatedly declaring that this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Later in the Lord's high priestly prayer in John 17, we read, these words spake Jesus and lifted up his eyes in heaven and said, Father, the hour has come, glorify thy son that thy son may glorify thee. Peter in, in 1 Peter writes that on the Mount of Transfiguration, he saw the glory of the only begotten son of God. Both the Father and the Holy Spirit work closely, closely together to glorify Jesus. To show that the world and creation, who the Lord Jesus is. One of the great mistakes that some make is they believe the Holy Spirit is here to glorify himself, or he acts independently, or he brings glory to himself. And, and I think it's a grave error to miss that the primary role of the Holy Spirit is to glorify the Lord Jesus. 
some people get confused about the working of the Godhead. The Jews believed in one God and struggled with the Lord Jesus being a God because they didn't understand a three-person Godhead. The Gentiles were confused since the Christians seemed to represent to seem to worship more than one God in their minds, at least, but refused to re recognize the pagan gods as gods. Some would deny the Trinity. I think it's a clearly taught passage in this. While it's not easy to understand it, and unfortunately, many people come up with illustrations that I think fail to even begin to give us a concept of what the Trinity is. We have an infinite God who does not fit within our finite mind's understanding. Far too often people want to put God in a box and they put him in a smaller box so that they can fully understand him. And if they don't have a God they can explain, they don't want that God. Well, I'm thankful that I have a God who I cannot explain. I cannot fully understand because he would be a pretty small God if I understood him fully. He'd be a smaller God than my mind if I could fully understand him. We have a God who's infinite. We have finite minds. It's very hard to understand. There's many things in scripture I do not understand. I don't understand, as Paul said, great is the mystery Christ is manifest in the flesh. Far too often I hear people try to explain how things work and they get into dangerous ground by trying to understand something that is not understandable. And so it, there's grave danger there and I think we should be very careful. Verse 15, all things that the Father hath are mine, therefore said I that he shall take of mine and shall show it unto you. Earlier Jesus had said in John 14, he's nine, he said, Jesus said unto him, have I been with you so, so long time with you, and yet hast thou not known me, Philip? He that has seen me has seen the Father, and has say, how sayest thou then, show us the Father? Paul virtually wrote the same thing to Timothy. And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up into glory. This is when we stop and think of this is amazing, it, it boggles my mind. Our hearts should be moved to worship, to consider that Jesus was very God and very man and came to earth to be our redeemer. Uh, I know we just spent some time thinking about that very thing, that he was our substitute. Paul puts it this way, for you know the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, Yet for our sakes, he became poor. We, through his poverty, might be rich. Another passage, he says that he became sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. He was very God. And so there's three things working in harmony, all working together, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit in this passage. So first off, we have the Father, the all-knowing Father. We have Jesus, who has all knowledge, wisdom, and understanding of the Father belong to him. And then we have the Holy Spirit, who will take the things of Christ and show it to us. So once again, this is, I 
as I mentioned earlier, this is a great passage on the Trinity. You have all three persons of the Godhead mentioned here. Jesus had to close to the Father to the, the Father to the disciples, and now the Holy Spirit was going to disclose the Son to the disciples. Our understanding and appreciation of the Lord Jesus Christ was because the Holy Spirit lives within us. And it's only because of his work in our lives that we can understand and appreciate the Lord Jesus. The word in John 1.18, we read, No man hath seen the Father at any time, the only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, he has declared him. The word translated declared is the word we get our theological term exegesis from. Jesus has exegeted or fully explained God for us. There's no further explanation of him that we can find than we can find in Jesus. One of the things that when I counsel, one of the things that I come run across a lot is people have a wrong view of God. And it greatly affects their lives when they have a wrong view of God. They see God as an austere. I, I was talking to one man and I said, what's your view of God? He says, I, I think God's a, a, someone who sits with a big stick and every time I step out of line, he whacks me. Well, that's not my God. Because <laughs> I have a very gracious God, a very understanding God. I would even go so far to tell you that I have a meek God because the Lord Jesus was meek and lowly and he demonstrated the Father to us. Our understanding of the Father should start with Jesus Christ and what he did. We have a loving, gracious God who cares for us enough that he gave his son to us. Your view of God the Father will affect many areas in, of your life. Paul tells us just how much of the Godhead was in Jesus. He says, in Colossians 1.19, for it pleased the Father that in him should all fullness dwell. So same idea in this verse, that everything the Father has, a Son has. Absolutely equal. Absolutely. And Jesus revealed all of that to us. In Hebrews 1, a, a pretty well-known passage says this, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his son who has appointed heir of all things by whom also he made the world to be in the brightness of his glory in the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power whom he had by himself purged our sins sat down at the right hand of the majesty of God. The express image of his person. We should understand God the Father because we know Jesus Christ and who we know and what we know about Jesus Christ. Let's look at verse 16. A little while. A little while. And you shall not see me. And again, a little while you shall see me because I go to the Father. This ends up being a riddle to the disciples. And he's again reminding them of the soon departure. He's, he's told them about it. He's reminded about it. He's doing it again. 
And it's the first time he's brought it up during this last discourse with his disciples. Jesus came into the world to die and being fully aware that the time had come, he explains to the disciples once again of his imminent departure. The phrase a little while, a single Greek word, appears seven times in verses 16 through 19. It refers to a short period of time. Here we find two short periods of time. Some see this in future context, but I see it in the immediate context of the disciples. Some see it speaking about his second coming or his, or the rapture. I don't believe that's what he's talking about with the disciples. The first period, I believe, is between the Lord's death and his resurrection. This was only the only prolonged period during which the disciples had not seen him. In the last three and a half years, he had not separated for them for more than a few hours to go pray at any one point in time. He had spoken about a three-day period where he would, numerous times, drawing the little while, the apostles were still uncertain, failing to understand and expect the resurrection. The second period, you shall see me. This would be the 40 days leading to his ascension. Being seen of, of, him, of them for 40 days, Acts tells us. The Lord had not spoken much of his ascension. He had often spoken about returning to the Father that had sent him. And John mentions it twice seven, in 7.33 in, in chapter 14, verse 28, without saying about the actual bench, which would how they would be achieved how he would ascend to the father so obviously this riddle then causes much confusion among the disciples verse 17 then sent some of the disciples among themselves what is this that he saith unto us a little while he shall see me and again a little while he shall not he shall and you shall see me because i go to the father throughout the book of john the disciples demonstrated regrettable ignorance concerning his death and resurrection. They really didn't understand. They really struggled with that. Partly with their just Jewish upbringing of expecting the Messiah to bring in the kingdom. It was a lot for them to overcome this whole idea that the Messiah was going to come to rule and to reign. It was the common teaching of the Jewish leaders at the time it was a common expectation of the Jews that the Messiah was coming to set up a kingdom. They struggled overcoming that. They missed the messages that he was giving that now was not the time. Therefore, it's not surprising they were confused by what the Lord said, and it, they discussed it among themselves. And as they discussed it among themselves, as the conclusion is they did not know what he's talking about. This was a riddle that was beyond their ability to resolve. The sad part, I think, is today we live in a time when many people are confused. They take many things in scripture as a riddle when there's really no reason to. We have so much more information than the disciples had. We have the spirit of God, the spirit of truth, the comforter to lead us into all truth. There's really no reason why we should be confused about God's message or what God's doing. There's no reason why we should remain ignorant. My fear is, though, that some are. Verse 19 and 20. 
Now Jesus knew that the, that they were desirous to ask him and said unto them, Do ye inquire among yourselves of that I said, A little while, and ye shall not see me? And again, a little while, and ye shall see me. Verily, verily, I send you that ye shall reap and lament, but the world shall rejoice, and ye shall be sorrowful, but your sorrow will be turned into joy. John, in his gospel, presents Jesus as a son of God, and he reminds us again and again that as a son of God, he knew all things. He knew what was on the mind of his disciples. He knew they were confused. And he knows and he shows what they were discussing and understands why they were confused. And then he tells them, and it's a great contrast here, they would be filled with sorrow while the world rejoiced. In his explanation, it probably was even more confusing. How can we be filled with sorrow while the world rejoices? I don't know if you, we read Isaiah 53 this morning, and thank you very much for that, Dick. As I think about the crucifixion, I don't know that I've thought of it as the world rejoicing. The son of God, the perfect son of God who healed and did marvelous signs as Peter could say on the day of Pentecost, he was approved of God by both signs and wonders. How the crucifixion of the son of God would cause the world to rejoice. You know, Paul talks about the prince of, the, of this era, the power of this world, the God of this world, Satan. That's how deceived people can be, that they would rejoice at the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus. And yet we see the sorrow of the disciples and the rejoicing of the world. However, what he tells them is that sorrow would be short-lived because their sorrow would turn to joy. We have some of this understanding of just how deep that sorrow is, is from reading from the end of Luke, the passage concerning the road of the two disciples traveling to Emmaus. And they say, we thought he was the one That's why the preaching of the cross is foolishness to a Jew. A a crucified Messiah absolutely meant all the promises were null and void that were promised to the Messiah. They didn't see any other way out of it. A dead Messiah just does not compute to a Jewish mind. And so the disciples are really struggling with this, and he tells them, your sorrow will turn to joy. And then he's going to give them an explanation. Verse 21, a woman when she is in travel have sorrow because her hours come, but as soon as she delivered of the child, she remembers no more the anguish for joy that a man is born. The Lord was a great teacher. 
and he likens a problem of grief over his soon departure to the pains of childbirth expect, experienced by an expectant mother. The teaching is amazing and true. Jesus often used everything, everyday things in life to teach great spiritual truths so his audiences could understand. And if you'll recall, we can think of this with Nicodemus. It was everyday things of life, how the wind blows. With the woman at the well, it was the idea of water and thirst. And he uses these everyday things to help us understand spiritual truths. And the analogy here is meant to show a spiritual abstract truth from earthly tangible things. And so Jesus brings together the physical experience of a woman in labor and giving birth to disciples, the pain of facing Jesus' physical withdrawal from them. And so he says, like a woman has pangs and great difficulty prior to birth, that's what you're going to feel like when you see me die, when you see me depart. But remember what's coming. Remember the prospect. And he had been telling that he had been appointed to die, that he was coming to die. And he's telling them that he was leaving them for something greater. He had told them that he had to depart or the comforter would not come. He'd been preparing them for this the whole time. And it was like they were hearing him, but they weren't understanding. And so now he's going to tell them it's going to be like childbirth. Sorrow was forgotten when it's replaced by lasting joy. And he's telling them your sorrow is going to be replaced by lasting joy. I have a young couple that I'm counseling now and they're really struggling during this crisis and this quarantine time. They had built up a business. It looked like it was turning the corner. It was profitable. Everything was going great. And the quarantine time came. And their business shut down. They have no income. Who knows when they're gonna be able to start it up again? Who knows if they're gonna be able to survive? They're paying rent on the building that the business is in. They're in a position right now that there's some sorrow there. And it's a death of a dream and the death of a lot of hard work. And they don't see coming joy. And Paul talks about that in Romans 5, that when we go through difficult trials and tribulations, it's because the Lord has something even better for us. And he's telling the disciples here that times are going to be tough, but be, there's something better coming. There's lasting joy, temporary sorrow for lasting joy. The promise of the Christian is that no matter how sorrowful this life is, there is coming lasting joy. Paul says that 
he's willing to suffer affliction because of the eternal weight of glory that's coming. We tend to be creatures of habit and we really don't particularly like suffering afflictions particularly. Verse 22. And ye now there and you and ye now therefore have sorrow, but I will see you again and your heart shall rejoice and your joy no man taketh away from you. You'll you'll have sorrow. You'll have sorrow. I'm you're gonna see me die on a cross and you're gonna be very sorrowful. But it's gonna be temporary at best. It's gonna be in a very few short hours, their sorrow would be overwhelming, but it would be temporary at best. I don't know if I could put themselves myself in their shoes, but watching their Lord and master, their teacher, their friend die on a cross would have been overwhelming. Talk about the death of a dream. And yet he tells them it's temporary. And that sorrow would turn to joy. And we know the rest of the story that that sorrow was turned to joy because they saw the Lord Jesus raised from the dead. Paul's testimony to Cornelius was we, we saw him and we ate with him. It wasn't a spiritual resurrection. It was a bodily resurrection. And he showed himself to them and their sorrow turned to permanent joy. They, you read the book of Acts and the, between the resurrection and the descension of the Holy Spirit, their life was totally, completely changed as our life should be when we come to know the Lord Jesus. One of the studies that we've done recently is in second is in first Kings. And in the study of first Kings, the queen of Sheba comes to visit Solomon. And the thing that struck me out of that story when she comes to visit Solomon is the thing that she was impressed about. She was impressed with many things, but what the scripture tells us she was impressed about was that his servants, and his soldiers were happy. And I thought quite a bit about that. And earlier he told his disciples that he wanted his disciples to have fullness of joy. And I wonder sometimes if the Christians I know are happy, if our sorrow has been turned to joy. I would think that just like the disciple sorrow was turned to joy, that when we know the Lord Jesus, we should be happy. There, there should be some joy in our life because we know the Lord Jesus. I was explaining to this young couple that I was counseling yesterday, is that we have a hope that the world does not have. 
Think if you're unsafe and had started a business and the business and you were losing your business because of this crisis. What hope would you have? It would be a pretty hopeless situation. Your sorrow will never turn to joy. But we as Christians know that God loves us because he proved his love to us by sparing not his own son. And we know whether it's on this world or in eternity, our sorrow will turn to joy and it will be everlasting joy. So I guess the question that I'll close with is this, is do you know the permanent joy that comes from knowing the Lord Jesus as your savior? And if you know him, do you show and demonstrate that you are happy to the outside world, like the servants of King Solomon demonstrated to Queen of Sheba? The Lord Jesus says in the New Testament, a greater than Solomon is here. Praise God that we know the greater than Solomon, the Lord Jesus himself. Let's pray. Father, we come to you. We thank you for this passage. We thank you for the encouragement in them. We thank you for the doctrine in it about the Trinity and the Holy Spirit. Father, we would be those who would be happy. We'd be those who have everlasting joy. We'd be those who could say that there's an everlasting flowing of, of joy out of our lives because of the Lord Jesus. And so, Father, we thank you again for this opportunity to meet virtually when we couldn't meet physically. We thank you that we are encouraged to be your people. We thank you for the Holy Spirit leading us into truth. We would not remain ignorant, Father but we would be those who know the truth and teach the truth as it can only be found in Jesus Christ. We thank you again in his name, the Lord Jesus. Amen.